like the Brendels, we had opportunity to worship at a, a sister church, a PCA church in Shreveport, where our daughter and son-in-law and uh, grandson attend. And it was just a marvelous experience. You know, it is one of those things where you go uh, to these other locations and you realize we're not alone at all. We're not alone at all. And in conversations, we went to home group and we had a, a birthday party. So we had got to know some of these folks pretty well in some ways. And uh, one of the things that just strikes me is sort of a, a universal affinity uh, for Christians uh, around the world is, is a love for Tolkien's writings, a love for the Lord of the Rings series and, and that sort of thing. And I think one reason why is because Tolkien seems to, as a student of Scripture, seems to sum up this principle that we are in an epic struggle. We are characters in a great narrative of good triumphing over evil. And one of the ways Tolkien kind of uh, appeals to us because of that is his use of prophecy or portents in his writings. Uh, for instance, there are ominous, ominous prophecies such as this one. Three kings for the elven kings under the sky. Seven for the dwarf lords in their halls of stone. Nine for mortal men doomed to die. One for the dark lord on his dark throne. In the land of Mordor, where the shadows lie, one ring to rule them all, one ring to find them, one ring to bind them all, and in the darkness bind them. In the land of Mordor, where the shadows lie. And yet, he doesn't leave us there, because there are great prophecies of hope as well. Aragorn, uh, the coming, coming king, uh, in hiding at this point in time, tells Bormer about the sword. The sword that was broken is the sword of Elendil, that broke beneath him when he fell. And is a treasured by his heirs when all other heirlooms are lost. For it was spoken of among us that he should be made again, uh, that, that it should be made again when the ring, Isildur's bane, was found. And in keeping with the coming of that king, we read this prophecy. All that is gold does not glitter, not all who wander are lost. The old that is strong does not wither, deep roots are not reached by the frost. When the ashes of fire shall be woken, a light from the shadow shall spring. Renewed shall be the blade that was broken. The crownless again shall be king. Indeed, the elfsmiths of Imaldris did reforge the broken uh, sword. And it gleaned so much that Aragorn called it Andural, uh, the flame of the west. As we look at prophecy in scripture today... We're going to also uh, uh, understand what Galadriel said when she looked in her mirror of prophecy in Lothlorien. That we need to remember the mirror shows many things and not all have yet come to pass. As we look at the prophecy of the coming of Jesus Christ, the return of the king, and of the destruction of the Antichrist, and of the devil and all of his works, it's my hope that we will take courage, just as the characters in the Lord of the Rings took courage from their prophecy, but that we, in, in re living out this real-life story of good over evil, will be encouraged in our faith today. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do come to you, Lord, with a recognition that uh, there, uh, we would desire to know so much more than has been provided, Lord. But in some ways, that might be an evil curiosity because we don't like to have faith. But in faith, we turn to you and we pray, God, that you would help us to have an understanding of what you have chosen to reveal to us through the letters of the Apostle Paul in First and Second Thessalonians. And we pray, Lord God, that you would help us to be those who are fight for good, stand on the side of justice, and do the right thing by worshiping and longing for 
the return of the King. Bless us now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please do turn to 2 Thessalonians. Again, this is a, a three-hour sermon. Not today, but it's broken down on four different Sundays. And Lord willing, we will complete this next Lord's Day. But this is just one section of that sermon. You will probably find the outline on your home group helps of assistance. And I would encourage you that if this is the first time you've heard this, you might want to go back to our website and listen to the previous sermon so that you can get the, the full import of what's being taught here. Because this is one of those areas that's less clear than some other areas. But there are some things that are very, very clear. And that is that our king will return. I'm going to read to you uh, verses 1 uh, through uh, 12 of this uh, particular prophecy, this teaching from the Apostle Paul, which was written to encourage the Thessalonian church. He had already taught them about the return of the king, uh, but he's, having to have remi- he's now having to remind them of that return and what's going to be involved with that because people have come in under the guise as a false apostle Paul, under, uh, pretending to be the apostle Paul, and brought confusion, saying perhaps that the resurrection has already taken place. So the apostle Paul is trying to set the record straight, and in so doing, he blesses us with this account of those things that are yet future. God says, the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Now we request you, brethren, that with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed, either by spirit or a message or a letter as if from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now? So that in this time he may be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And now for our passage this morning. And then that lawless one will be revealed uh, revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth. And bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they may by, uh, might believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. So as the Apostle Paul has been telling us about what are some of the signs that preceded the day of the Lord and encouraged them to understand what's happening so that they're not concerned, we looked, uh, of course, last uh, two weeks ago about what restrains the day of the Lord. But now we're going to see what actually happens on the day. So he's been talking somewhat about when the day of the Lord, the return of Christ and the destruction of evil is going to come. Now he's going to tell us exactly, well, not exactly, but he's going to tell us in some ways what actually happens. He starts off here then by saying, and then the lawlessness one will be revealed. 
Uh, as Hendrickson says, when the proper time arrives, Satan's scheme will become outwardly realized. The mystery will be replaced by the man. This is not just a figure of speech to speak about the principle of evil. There will be a one antichrist, an extremely powerful, extremely gifted uh, ruler uh, who is going to persecute the church of Jesus Christ and seek to be, receive worship that is due to the Lord himself here. So this is going to happen when this lawless man has been revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth. Isn't that interesting? You, don't, you get the sense here that, the, that once the Antichrist is revealed, that his reign is not going to be very long. He's going to be revealed, and the Lord is going to slay him with the breath of his mouth. In keeping with other prophetic utterances regarding this particular event, Daniel chapter 7 says his dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. Folks, the good guys win in the end. You want to be on the winning team when that time comes comes. Paul, of course, here's talking about here with the, the idea that he's going to slay him with the breath of his mouth. Uh, he is picking up some uh, language that he learned from Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 11. Listen to this, which is a, was a, a prophecy fulfilled in the first advent of Jesus Christ, but also will be ultimately revealed in the second advent of Jesus Christ, the return of the king. Isaiah 11 chapter 1, then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. And a branch from his roots will bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and strength. The spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And he will not judge by what his eyes see. Nor make decisions by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor. And decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Also, righteousness will be the belt around his loins and faithfulness, the belt around his waist. This idea of slay here is to make an end of. And of course, uh, Daniel, uh, uh, Paul and Thessalonians here uh, also has the testimony of uh, the Apostle John's writing, his vision in the book of Revelation. Revelation 19.20 says this, And the beast was seized. And with him the false prophet who performed the signs in this presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. It's remarkable the consistency that we have in all these various prophecies. And piecing these things together, we get a, a pretty good feel what's going to happen. But the point is not to get muddled down into the detail and wondering when this is all this happened. The point is, is that Jesus wins. At the return of the king, evil will be done away with. And he literally here, he is going to slay them with the breath of his mouth. Think about as we looked about in previous sermons, there have been, as John tells us, many antichrists to come. And an antichrist would be someone who is opposed to Christ, opposed to the teachings of Christianity, that wants to punish the church, that wants to cloak the world in darkness. And we can think of history, uh, history is, is replete with, with people, antichrists. Adolf Hitler, right? Mao Zedong, Joseph Stalin. There have been many, many uh, antichrists. And you think about how powerful was Hitler. How powerful was Stalin. And yet they will pale in comparison of the ultimate antichrist to come. They, all those evil men and women, in a sense, are shadows of the one who is to come. 
He will control perhaps the economy of the entire world. He will control perhaps the nations of the world. He will control all the military might of the entire world. How is he destroyed? How is he destroyed? Jesus comes back and with the breath of of his mouth, he destroys all of that power, all of that money, all of that influence, all of that intrigue, all of those things that he has done with the breath of his mouth. He's going to bring an end to the appearance of his coming. I think about Martin Luther's great hymn, of course, that which we love to sing, A Mighty Fortress in Our God. He says, one little word shall fell him. That's powerful. All of the power of, of, of the world at the disposal of Antichrist. Jesus comes back and with the breath of his mouth takes, takes it all down. That same Jesus, that same powerful Jesus is the one who died for you, who loves you who gave himself up for you. He is on your side. So you want to make sure that you are on uh, his side. He will bring it to an end of his appearance here. The conflict will not last long. And one of the things I love is that uh, that, uh, it, it may be that God involves us with this process as well. Paul reminds the Romans... Uh, in, in, uh, in the end of Romans chapter 16, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. You know, we look at the headlines, we look at our own lives, we look at the struggles that we, 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 we uh, endure, and, and we think the dark side seems to be winning. The forces of evil seem to be growing while the forces of good seem to be in retreat. But that's just simply not the case. This idea of bringing to an end is to render inoperative, to abolish, to make completely ineffective. He will be utterly defeated. And he does this, Christ does this by the appearance of his coming. When the return of the king comes, he will do all this. And he says here, that is in the, uh, uh, the one whose work is in accord to the activity of Satan. So it's not just the destruction of Antichrist. It's actually the destruction of all forms of evil. Because at the return of the king, God is going to, uh, he's going to basically burn the, the current earth with fire. The fire of righteousness. He's going to restore planet earth to a, its original Edenic state. Pre-fall state of Adam and Eve. And then he's going to repopulate that with his chosen, with his children. And we're going to live on this physical planet. And yet we will not have, it will be so completely different. Because if you think about so many accommodations we have to make in this life have to do with the fall. We have to, we have to accommodate uh, the, 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 the scarcity of things. We have to accommodate the, our sickness. We have to accommodate our age. We have to learn things. We, everything we do is an accommodation to the fall. There will be no fall. There will be no sin. There will not even be temptation to sin in the new world where righteousness dwells. So this is the good news, uh, the good prophecy that Paul wants us to understand that we win in the end. And he goes on to describe something about these, uh, this Antichrist, that he is, uh, this is in the activity of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders here. Now, think about that idea of false wonders. It... it uh, it's, it, it, it's not that the wonders themselves are false, the signs are self. They are actually, they're actually real. He will actually be able to perform signs that may even look like the kind of signs that Christ himself performed, but they lead to a false conclusion. We see this, uh, Jesus speaks about this in Mark chapter 13. And then if anyone says to you, behold, here's the Christ, or behold, he is there, do not believe him. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders... 
in order, if possible, to lead the elect astray. So people see these signs, these wonders, and they come to false conclusions. And what Paul wants us to understand is that it's going to be real clear, real clear, when Christ comes back, the heavens will open. There'll be the shout of the archangel, the blasting of the trumpet. Everyone will see him come back. So do not be misled by these false signs. But that is the goal. That is the goal of the evil one. He wants to, br to bring people and cause them to perish. And even if he could bring, uh, 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 deceive the elect so that they would be able to fall. This would be his main goal. He wants to, he wants to rob God of his children. Now, taking uh, account of Scripture, and we always interpret Scripture by, uh, by Scripture itself, we understand that the elect cannot lose their salvation. God does not choose and then unchoose uh, the, the same person. So that we can have a holy confidence, and yet there is a danger of presumption in many ways that we need to be careful of. He goes on here to talks about this man of lawlessness from verse 10, that the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. So who is it that is lost at this time? It's those who perished. They did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. Scripture is very clear. They want to make sure that genuine Christians will not be part of this group. This is part of the motivation with the Apostle John as he wrote about Antichrist in 1 John chapter 2. Children, it is the last hour, and just as you have heard, Antichrist is coming. Now even many Antichrists have arisen. From this we know that it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they'd been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out. In order that it might be shown that they all are not of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One... And you all know, notice that transition, one of those wonderful uh, uh, transitions of Scripture. But you, you're not like those, but you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know this. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. As for you, let that abide in you, which you have heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. Despite what happens, the Christian will fight on. Not one will be plucked from the Father's hand. So, in a sense, this is a grim kind of foretaste of what's coming we see the evil of this world, and we know that it's going to culminate in ultimate evil. But the Christian has no reason to fear his loss of salvation because a Christian cannot lose his salvation because we abide in the Son and we have the Father. There are always those who are going to be around, just like we've already mentioned in the service. You are not alone. There is a vast army of the children of God that are fighting for good even now. The, the, the churches of this world are filled today with people who are worshiping Christ. Again, you, you, you're at an advantage if you've actually read the Lord of the Rings books as opposed to just seeing the movie. And one of the great characters of the books was left out of the movies of Tom Bombadil. He's sort of a mystical wizard ancient character. He rescues the hobbits from the Barrow Downs, the, uh, the spirits that 
uh, hide in the old graveyard uh, in the fields and the barrows. Uh, and he gives them four swords, uh, which in the movie Aragorn gives them, but uh, Tom Bombadil actually gives them. And when he says that, he uh, mentions this. He says, few now remember, yet some go wandering, sons of forgotten kings, walking in loneliness, guarding from evil things, folks that are heedless. It says that Hobbits did not understand his words, but as he spoke, had a vision, as it were, of great expanse of years behind them, like a vast shadowy plain over which are strode shapes of men, tall and grim, with bright swords. And last came one with a star on his brow. And the vision faded, and they were back in the sunlit world. Now, if you understand that, the reader understands what the hobbits didn't know, that that one with the star on his brow was the king, was Aragorn. He's describing the rangers, those who do not bow a knee to evil, those who still fight for good, even in the darkness, and that is happening even here today. As I am looking out, I am seeing those great men and women of faith and of strength and of courage that are standing against the attacks of the evil one. But who was it that was lost? They, they were lost because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. One commentator says this, the unregenerate are eternally lost, not because they did not hear or understand the truth, but because they did not love it. Unbelievers do not welcome either Jesus or the gospel he proclaimed. They willfully reject the truth of the gospel. They reject grace. They believe either they, they've, they've decided to not believe in a heaven or they believe they're going to get there on their own merits because they're such a good person. Jesus talk, talk, uh, talked about these kinds of folks in Matthew chapter 23. Jesus lamented as he's going over Jerusalem right before he was uh, crucified. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stoned those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a way, uh, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were unwilling. John speaks of this group. John chapter 3, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds are evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. So what is the, what is the crux of the issue here? Why will these particular people be condemned and you will not be condemned? Well, because it's a matter of faith. You have to believe what God says through his word and that you're saved by grace. Hebrews chapter 11 says, without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Uh, then we, he goes on to say in verse 11, for this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so they might believe what is false. In other words, basically, God is active in this process because they've rejected the truth. They will also embrace the lie and the ultimate lie of Satan. They have made a lifestyle of pursuing darkness. So when the ultimate darkness comes, it's natural for them to pursue and go after and worship and bow down to that ultimate darkness here. But notice here the activity of God. It says here that God will send upon them a deluding influence. Probably one of the great examples of this is Pharaoh. Pharaoh hardened his own heart, according to Exodus chapter 8, chapter 9, and 1 Samuel 6. But then God hardens Pharaoh's heart, fixing him on the path that he could never return. You see that in Exodus 4, Exodus 7, Exodus 9, Exodus 10, Exodus 20, Exodus 11, and Exodus 14. So which one is it? Did Pharaoh harden his own heart? Yes. Did God harden his heart? 
Yes. And part the point here is that God is active. While it may look like the world is going to hell in a handbasket, God is active in that whole pro, uh, in that whole process. He is superintending these issues. He is using this evil as uh, as an outcome to bring about an outcome for good. He goes on to say, in order that they may be judged who did not believe the truth. Again, Satan is the father of lies, so his followers are going to embrace lies. Now, that is the case when Antichrist rises up, when Christ the King comes back. But that's the case today, too. The spirit of lawlessness is very much alive today. Every one of the headlines, on, it seems like almost every one of the headlines uh, daily is that the very people who are supposed to be protecting you are actually embracing lawlessness that will end up ultimately hurting you and them. And sometimes we get so overwhelmed, but notice this, God has not blinked. This has not been lost on him. It's not like he's on vacation and all of a sudden all this bad stuff's happening. Everything has a purpose. He is foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. And part of this reason is to bring upon this final judgment. These people who are going to be judged are going to know why they should be judged because they've rejected the truth. They have embraced darkness and instead of light. They will, only, they will only succeed because it fits somehow into God's sovereign purpose, as one commentator says. And these people took pleasure in wickedness. You know, one of the signs of a Christian is that, is that we look at wickedness and we hate it. We hate it. We see the death that it brings. We see the pain that it brings. We also hate it from experience. Because all of us have performed acts of wickedness before too. And we've regretted it, right? So we understand we want, we want better for people than to pursue this, this immorality, this idolatry, this evil that is happening here. Again... Uh, John Newton, God, John Newton, the Apostle Paul, understood evil firsthand. They had performed numerous acts, acts beyond number. That's why they're so zealous for this principle of grace that we embrace in the Christian church. Yeah, the ideas have con consequences. If you embrace wickedness, you're going to end up embracing the man of lawlessness, uh, and uh, you're going to end up being destroyed. And yet, God is all part of this mix. He's part of this formula. He's not part of this formula. He's the designer of this formula here. So that you don't think that God is the one who is bringing upon this evilness. He is permitting it in his decrees. Uh, one commentator gives a wonderful summary here. God is love. He is not a cruel monster who deliberately and with inward delight prepares people for everlasting damnation. On the contrary, he expressly warns, proclaims the gospel, and states what will happen if people believe. Also, what will happen if they don't believe. He even urges them to accept the love of the truth. But when people of their own accord and after repeated threats and promises reject him and spurn his message, then and not until then, he hardens them in order that those who were, who were not willing to repent may not be able to repent but may believe in falsehood that the man of lawlessness is uh, God and only God and that everyone should obey him. This is a warning for those of you who don't know Christ. Those of you here, those of you who are watching online. You don't want to be on the wrong side of this final conflict, which is coming, which consistently is taught throughout uh, Holy Scripture here. 
And it's very grave and it's very deep. But truth compels me to, to warn you that you want to be on the right side. You want to be born again. You want to be a Christian. You want to be on the right side of this great conflict that's coming. I'm something of a, a student of World War II. Again, I've seen every documentary 15 times. Uh, I, and one of the things that always strikes me as, both, as being very sad uh, is if you see when the Allies come in and they liberate a formerly Nazi-held town, invariably uh, the, the resistance movement comes in, uh, sometimes with the help of the Allies, and they drag out all of those people who worked with the enemy, who were collaborators with the Nazis. And if you've ever seen these pictures, very often a woman who was a collaborator, they bring them out, they shave their head bald, they put a sign on them, they hurl abuses at them, sometimes they, they beat them and that kind of thing. They parade them around the town. Look at the collaborators. Now, how did that all start? It may have started as something as innocent as a young girl falls in love with a Nazi soldier. It may have been, and probably was, they thought, well, the Nazis are going to win. Look, they've already taken Europe. They're going to win this thing. It may have been because they agreed with the Nazis and that they were the master race and that they wanted to conquer and control and they wanted power and they wanted influence and they wanted wealth. Or it may have been they just made a stupid mistake. But at the end, it didn't matter what the reason was. They were on the wrong side of history. And their photographs to show that and their humiliation, and many of them paid for it with their lives. Folks, whatever happened to those Nazi collaborators at the end of World War II, when they were paraded in humiliation in the street, will pale in comparison to what's going to happen for those human beings who backed the Antichrist, who bowed a knee to him, who fought for his principles, perhaps who even persecuted the church. You want to be on the right side of history here. Because history repeats itself. And all of those little incidences like the ones after World War II are leading up to a great big incident. In Lord of the Rings, Tolkien, you had the Southrons. You had some of the other men. You had uh, uh, the uh, Corsairs from Boombao. You had all the different orcs who worked for the enemy and they were vanquished uh, in the end. This is grave. This is real. It will happen. It may not happen in our lifetime, but it will happen sometime. So what you want to do is make sure that you're flying the banner of Christ over your home, over your heart. But there's also a, a word of encouragement here. Again, Paul is trying to make sure that these people understand, that the church understands that they're not part of this group. He goes back, if we go back to 1 Thessalonians, when he first addressed this issue, he says in chapter 4, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, those who had already died, that you not grieve as to the rest who have no hope, because you are, as Christians, people who have hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who fall asleep with Christ. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who fall asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words." The, the key here is patient faith. 
as we wait for the outcomes of these kind of things and we do everything we can in our power to, to slow that outcome down, to be the salt that keeps the corruption and the rot from occurring, we need to have patient faith. Kim Riddleberger uh, mentions that practically every generation of Christians has been quite certain that Christ must return uh, during their time. Augustine believed the Roman Empire fell in order in the 5th century A.D. in order to prepare the world for the coming of Antichrist. Pope Urban II justified the First Crusade on the grounds that the captured Jerusalem must initiate the end times. Martin Luther was certain the Pope was the Antichrist and that the return of Christ was therefore imminent. And plenty of Catholics have thought Martin Luther was the Antichrist. It was a settled conviction among virtually all the Puritans that Christ was on the brink of return, most agreeing that he would come back in the year 1650. Now, those are our guys. You know, we, we like the Puritans. We like their doctrine. We like their, they invented the modern Christian family. They were wrong. Jonathan Edwards, the great theologian of American history, was convinced the Antichrist would arrive in the year 1866. He was wrong. So all these uh, questions about when he's going to come from are, are just, they're just not going to be answered. And most people have been wrong. And we see the evil and the decline in our days, and we assume the same thing's going to happen here, and it's likely that we will be wrong. But what we need to remember is that whatever happens, God is going to work it out for good, for his glory, for good, for the church. He, God, is so powerful that he can even use evil for good. You think of a wonderful example of that in the book of Esther, right? Remember Esther? Uh, Esther, uh, of course, is a queen, uh, the king of Persia. And uh, uh, evil Haman had uh, uh, hated the Jews and had figured out a way to commit genocide to destroy all the Jews, including Mordecai, Esther's uncle. And what is uh, and Haman even has a gallows built for Mordecai. What happens at the end? Haman himself is hung on the very gallows that he had intended for Mordecai. That's exactly what's going to happen with the Antichrist. It's all going to work out in the end, and it's all going to end up being a blessing for the church of Jesus Christ. Justin Martyr says this in his dialogue with Tripo. What brainless men... He gets away with that kind of stuff. What brainless men, for they have failed to understand what has been spoken by these passages, namely that two advents of Christ have been announced. The first, in which he is shown as suffering without glory, without honor, subject to crucifixion. And the second, in which he shall come with the heavens in glory, when the man of apostasy who utters arrogant things against the Most High will boldly attempt to perpetuate lawlessness Deeds even against the Christians. So it's just, it's not complicated. We tend to complicate it, but it's not comp complicated. There is an epic warfare, an epic battle going on right now. My challenge to you is to be on the right side. Now, I want to continue in that Isaiah chapter 11 verse we looked at before where he talked about he was going to destroy from the breath, uh, the, the, the evil one with the breath of his mouth. It continues on in verse 6 with a description of what awaits the believer. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like an ox. 
And the nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. And they will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters covers the sea. Then it will come about in that day that the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. What wonderful, wonderful language that is. Complete, perfect, beautiful harmony. And for those of us who have spent decades seeking the Lord's face, knowing his presence, but never being able to see him, but having to see through eyes of faith, we will behold him and we will be with him forever and ever and ever. That's the side you want to be on. Tolkien again describes this uh, as Frodo voyages away from the gray havens in Middle Earth. The movie cuts that short with the ship going out, but we get a scene in the books of what Frodo experiences as he's going to the uh, it's kind of a symbol of heaven where the elves uh, live when they've left Middle Earth. And the ship went out into the high sea and passed into the west until at last on a night of rain, Frodo smelled a sweet fragrance on the air and heard the sound of singing that came over the water. And then it seemed to him, as in that dream of the house of Bombadil, the gray rain curtain turned all to silver glass and was rolled back. And he beheld white shores and beyond them a far green country under a swift sunrise. That's what awaits those who do not bow a knee to the Antichrist, who worship the Lord even to their death and who live a life of faith. May that be you. Lord, please bless us. And I pray, God, that you would bless those who don't know you, that they would know you today. That today would be the day of salvation. And for those of us who do know you, Lord, we lose perspective so often. We get so down. We get so full of shame and guilt over our own sins. We get in despair about the direction of our nation. And yet, in so doing, God, we forget with every sense of depression or anxiety or fear, we forget our God reigns. And in the end, he will win. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be mighty soldiers, brave and true, with skill in our arms and love in our hearts for our commander. And we long for the return of the king. In Christ's name, amen.